Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. Welcome, Gigi, to the Lisa podcast, where we go inside addiction to raise our audience's level of consciousness. Now, it's lovely to speak to you today. I just wondered if you could start us off by just letting us know your definition of addiction. Oh, well, that's... A primary question, isn't it? Because it's something that those of us who are prone to addiction struggle with (laughs) quite a bit. Um, For me, it was that when I had one drink or one, um, you know, toke of (laughs) marijuana, I could not trust myself to make decisions that kept me and other people safe so if I had even one drink I just had to prove to myself uh, and my my therapist that I went to um, he said well you, you know to find out if you have a problem just try having two drinks no more no less because I was not a daily drinker or all day drinker so but I was looking at my third divorce I was barely 40 years old. Something was clearly wrong. And um, when he asked me to do that experiment and observe what happened, he didn't suggest I go to any you know, 12-step groups. He just said, watch what happens when you drink and have only two and see if you can do that. And it was a little hard for me to diagnose the addiction because... Sometimes I could have only two drinks, and other times I would have two and three and four and find the marijuana and pick up the man and go home with the stranger and do really unsafe, crazy things and then hate myself the next morning. And over a six-month period, I thank God I lived through it, but I noticed that um, I could not predict what I would do if I had one drink or drug. And I better not even have one. Yeah. And I think that experiment is really good. And I recommend it to our audience just to try and, like you say, go home and just stop at one or two and see how successful it is. And like you say, just being aware of your drinking or your drug use and just being aware and waking up and sort of going through that process with your eyes open can be really valuable. Mm -hmm. One thing I should mention... uh, they are regular size drinks. You know how sometimes in trying to be being a person with a problem, we can fool ourselves and say, well, I only have one drink, but it had four shots in it, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, and like that's a good point to mention. Yeah, the size of the glass is important. Um, yeah. yeah, not just drinking it out of the bottle and one bottle of wine uh, counts. Um, but yeah, I think oftentimes it can be excessive. And just thinking about you and your kind of journey, what was it like for you, you know, drinking and using drugs? And a lot of people say, a lot of my clients say, oh, but I'm not on a park bench, so it doesn't count. And like you say, you weren't necessarily drinking or doing drugs every day. What was your experience like? I think these days, because of the awareness of the and the public figures coming forth and talking about their problems with addiction and alcohol and, uh, and their recoveries, people are more aware. And well, this was 1986 when I got sober, so I don't know that people were that aware. But the, the point is that you don't have to have a completely devastating, lose everything bottom. At least I didn't. I had a rather high bottom um, because what what brought me to the therapist was that I had this brand new PhD. I was looking really good in all my professional things, but my third husband was traveling, and I then, within nine months of marrying my third husband, he's out of town. I'm going to a bar picking up a stranger, finding drugs. Not every time, but it, you know, this was not um, a picture of emotional health. <laughs> I had serious concerns about myself. 
And I didn't think I had a problem with drugs or alcohol because it wasn't constant every day, etc. Um, but after I did that experiment of the two drinks and watched my behavior, um, I also got a, um, <laughs> my, my husband at the time was in Al-Anon, and so he knew about addiction, and he was going to meetings, so he did not try to control me, or even, well, one time he confronted me, and I said, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'll go have an evaluation, and I'll show you, and so we went to the addiction specialist evaluation together, and I I loved it because the guy turned first to my husband and he said, you have a major issue with control. And I was going, yes, you know. <laughs> and then he turned to me and he said, and you have a fatal disease that's only going to continue getting worse. And if you don't stop, you'll lose all the things that people typically lose. That got my attention between the experiment with two drinks, no more, no less, and the evaluation, there just came a moment when my husband, we were having dinner, and I had a beer, and he, you know, was one of those, I do believe in a higher power, I, I define it, you know, and not in a, I define it as I define it, just like if you're in a 12-step program, you get to do that, and I've been in 12-step programs. Um, ever, ever since, since I got, got sober, so it's really helped me. But so that might have been one of those um, moments of grace or higher power. But he was prompted to say, "What would happen if this were your last drink?" And I was had never even thought of it. Well, I had thought of it. I had flushed all my marijuana down the toilet one time and went to a church service and ran up to the front, and surrendered. And then came home and, you know, flushed it all down the toilet. And then in a week I was out finding more drugs and alcohol. So I had thought about quitting, but for some reason I felt willing at that point, which is that magical thing that happens, to say, yeah, that could happen. And then the next day we went, um, he said, I know of a meeting. And it was one of those where they had an AA meeting in one room and an Al-Anon in another. So he went to his and I went to mine. And the room was full of smoke. It was, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was mostly men. And I, as they talked, you know, I, I said I was a newcomer and never been to a meeting before, didn't know anything about the 12 steps. I mean, I had a cousin who had, you know, so gotten sober with alcohol. You know, she's she's in, she's a member now, right, of AA. That's how people say, you know, you're a member of AA. And there I was, and I felt completely comfortable and I could relate to those mostly men and their stories about how mostly the emotional pain of doing things that I did not want to be doing and crashing and burning in all my relationships. I never could stay married long enough to have children. <laughs> and I, you know, I was late 30s and I was thinking, where's the picket fence? You know, where are the two children? Where's the dream? And so that was where I realized that, uh, you know, as these people talked about their lives, that I could stop now and not have to have the devastation that they were talking about. Yeah, and like you say, you didn't have to have that devastation, but it's interesting this idea of kind of willingness, and like you say, when your husband said that to you, what if this was your last drink? It just suddenly, like you say, you can't kind of, it's not physical, it's more metaphysical, but it's just that kind of shift that's like, what's happening, how does this work? but I'm ready now. And like you said, when you went to that first AA meeting, you felt completely comfortable hearing all their stories. But as you were walking up to the door before you went in, how did you feel in that moment? Oof. You know, I do not remember. And part of it is when you're using alcohol and drugs, you have no clue what your feelings are. I, so my real feelings 
I would, I could guess that. But basically, you know, what alcohol and drugs do is they take the feelings away so we don't have to um, face them, deal with them, work with them, heal them. So I'm sorry, I can't really, I was willing. I'm sure I felt trepidation, but I did it anyway. Yeah. I was pretty desperate. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, you know, some of the themes I saw in myself and in clients is you don't necessarily need to know how you feel, but you know that you're desperate and you know you have a willingness to change and do something else. And kind of those two are all that's required is that sort of surrendering and willingness to move forward and go to something like therapy or AA or reach out for help. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Yeah. 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 I... Yeah, I don't think, I don't know, it's, it's, it is kind of a magical moment when we become willing to ask for help. And it's one of the hardest things to do because I was fiercely independent. I was, a, you know, the youngest and so I was a little bit of that uh, child who had to create her own success and her own sense of being worthy and so on and a very depressed mother with a father who was out drinking a lot, at least enough to make her uh, um, emotionally unavailable a lot of the time. And so I had constructed this whole house of cards sense of self that was based on good grades, having boyfriends, being popular, looking good. It's like an invented self that I had. And then when, you know, grad school, getting the PhD, I'm still not happy, and my relationships have crashed and burned, not only three marriages, but other two other long-term relationships. It was like, wow, my formula for making myself happy is not working. And maybe that's the one thing I related to in the meeting, was that those people admitted that as smart as they were, or as competent as they had been, they had not been able to get their dreams to come true, or if they had, like I had with a degree, they still weren't happy, and they still were self-sabotaging. Yeah, and it's difficult, like you say, when you get all those accomplishments on the outside, you look around and you're like, I thought I'd get here and I'd be happy. I thought I'd have the long-term relationship, the degree, I'd have all of this stuff and everything would be okay. But it's not okay and I don't understand why. I'm insanely intelligent, I'm insanely clever. Um, I've got all the achievements and accolades, but I'm not. I just look around in my life, like you say, that's self-sabotage. I keep just kind of tripping myself up and I don't get what's going on. Exactly, exactly. It's, um, you know, that whole thing of comparing myself with others, where if I wanted to be happy, then I would look at people who were happy and then I would try to act like they did. And so there was a whole pretending, you know, now that there's a word they call it, I can't remember, oh, the imposter self. In, in uh, my book, I call it the invented self because I created it as a way to feel okay. Um, it's a real kick in the pants when it, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, everything I've tried to do to make myself happy is not working. And, and marijuana made it worse because when I, I had a period in my life where I was in one of these you know, marriages, I was a kept woman. In other words, I lived on a yacht in Hawaii. My husband uh, owned it. Um, he, I didn't have to work, and I smoked a lot of marijuana, <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why I was so depressed, and I would get up and feel like there's nothing important to do today, and then I would get high, and then I'd go, you know, eat a lot, and then, you know, and I even did some purging, and, you know, I mean, I was insane, and I kept pinching myself. You're living on a yacht. You don't have to work. You're in Hawaii. What's wrong? And I could only conclude, well, I, I, I was so frustrated with how 
my life was that I just smoked marijuana more. Uh, and he was not against that. And, I, you know, I didn't. Anyway, he was he was fine with me using moderately. At that point, it wasn't. It started to become a daily habit, but I was kind of like a chameleon. If the man used that I was with, then I did. You know, if he didn't use a whole lot, then I didn't or I hid it. Yeah. And like you say, from the outside, people may have looked at you and been like, she's living on a yacht, she doesn't have to work, she's in Hawaii, she's living the dream. But like you say, inside and on the yacht, things didn't quite match up with that picture. Exactly. And I think that's a very... It's like the dissonance between who we've created ourselves to be and how everybody else looks at us. It, it hit me even more when I got my first job in the university. And, um, you know, this was highly against the law, but I mean, I went out to schools. I was working in schools and um, I'd finish in the school and, you know, a block away, I'd be in my little Volkswagen bug and I'd open the glove box and roll a joint and get high. And, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And then the marriage was falling apart, too, you know. So a lot of evidence. And it's interesting. It seems like a lot of women I talk to, thank God women are waking up earlier and earlier to this, earlier in their years. However, um, I think a lot of people keep trying that same formula until somewhere in the 30s, early 40s, and then the shit hits the fan. And we wake up somewhat, if we're lucky, and seek help. Yeah. And like you say, just looking back at that picture, it's like, what? It doesn't even make sense. But at the time, what were some of the justifications that you made in your own mind to allow yourself to do it? Um, well, that's interesting. In the marriage in Hawaii, it was... Um, a contract marriage dissolvable at any time so it felt like an open marriage so I didn't beat up on myself for sleeping around um, but in my third marriage it was not an open marriage I thought oh this guy is not a lot older than I am every time I had a relationship or got married I had a courtship of three or four months Maybe five. <laughs> so I was fell in love fast, crawled in the man's back pocket, lived my life the way they wanted me to be, and then I could make it last for two to three to four years, and then I'd get bored and say, oh, I'm not in love anymore. And then, so this last marriage, I wasn't in recovery yet, but the man was not a lot older than I was. I did have a very quick courtship. Uh, and um, it was just... I couldn't rationalize my behavior in my third marriage, having gotten the degrees and the success and the this and the that. And here I was, still even worse, engaging in behavior that was dangerous and grossed me out and hiding and lying. I guess I was lucky to get to the point where that emotional pain was just too much. Yeah, and when you got to that sense of emotional pain, like you said, you went to that first AA meeting, how did things progress from there into your recovery? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, addiction is a disease of isolation, where... I only had a man that I pretended to be the man, you know, whatever they wanted, and one primary female friend who was my using buddy. So I knew how to relate to people if it was romantic or if it was in the using context. When I got into the tables and rooms of AA, they, uh, they discouraged hanging out with the men because, you know, what they call 13th stepping, you're, you're supposed to 
But I didn't want to hang with the women because I didn't know how to handle women. In other words, whatever little ploys I had used with men, which were most of my interactions, I knew weren't going to work with women, so I was very hesitant. And yet they kept saying, your recovering female buddies are who you need to find as your support system, and you need to get a sponsor. Well, I went to three meetings a week for six months, and I thought that was doing a ton, because, you know, that, that was a lot of commitment on my part. I was still in therapy. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't make many female friends. I didn't use the phone numbers they gave me. Um, you know, I applied the same formula I did to everything else. I'm going to go to the meetings, but I'm going to kind of keep one foot in and one foot out. And then, after six months, like, I don't know if, the, if it's the culture or it took me that long, because I had tried to become a Christian two or three times before and went to communities where, you know, I wanted to believe and so on, and, and I kept um, feeling coerced, like I had to believe this, this, and this, and my bullshit detector kept going off because I just couldn't buy it. And when I got into the rooms, I was, and I was you know, in the AA rooms, I was expecting my bullshit detector to go off, and it didn't. But it still took me six months to... And, he, and here's what clinched it. Um, these women were sitting around talking about how they called their sponsors when they were feeling alone, or they called their sponsors when they were feeling confused, or um, and how wonderful their sponsors were, and how loving their sponsors were. And part of me went, oh, I want that too. I, I just... I guess I had developed enough trust that this was not a coercive group of people and that I was going to be able to go at whatever pace. No one uh, said, oh, you're only going to three meetings a week? You know, none of that. Um, I heard people say that they were happiest when they went to four or five. I heard people say they went to meetings every day. You know, I listened. Um, but anyway, at that six-month point, I thought, okay, how do I get a sponsor? And, you know, I've heard people talking about you just have a sense. But again, it's that little crack of willingness because uh, once, I don't know which happened first, but um, I knew who the person was I was going to ask. Because when I sat at tables with her, and here's the reason we have to go to enough meetings we have to go to enough meetings to get to know some other women who are sober, right? And if you go to the meeting at the last minute and walk in late, and then you leave the minute they finish saying the prayer, it's kind of hard to get to know people. And so, you know, I heard people saying, well, come a little early or stay a little late, you know. And so I started, and I started noticing people talking before and after, and I wanted to have someone to talk to before and after, you know. So um, I had heard this woman share at tables several times, and I, I thought what she said made perfect sense. Even when she talked about the spiritual stuff, my bullshit detector didn't go off. So she was the one I asked to be my sponsor. It was very hard to do because deep down, I did not believe that I deserved anyone's undivided attention if there wasn't romance involved, because I had learned that in my family. I, I, I couldn't really expect anyone to give me their undivided attention. When I asked my sponsor, finally, to be my sponsor, she gave me undivided attention with no judging, and it was one of the biggest gifts I could have ever gotten. Yeah, and when you talk about your kind of bullshit detector for um yeah like uh christianity and religion in a sense a lot of people don't or say to me i'm not going to aa or na because it's too religious 
But mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you navigated that kind of false idea, in a sense, with your kind of bullshit detector. Thank, Thank you. you. That's, that's a, that's a great, great question. question. Um, we, we will be talking, talking about, about my book, book at some point. And what I tried to do in my book was take everything I knew about from recovery and all the psychological and energy healing and other things that I have pursued over the last 30 plus years. And um, the, oh, I lost the question you asked, I'm so sorry. Just in terms of, yeah, your uh, religious bullshit detector and um, NA and AA. My belief is that and, and that's why I um, struggle a little in the book, because my belief is we need to connect with something bigger than our own fear. And I think of it as the fearful self. Um, and then there's a loving self or a higher self or a true self or however you want to frame it. But there's a place of wisdom and light within each of us, I believe. And um, I remember a moment when this couple came up to me. I'd been going to that meeting regularly for over a year. And I think, I don't know why they came up to me. It might have been a higher powered thing. Again, there's that higher power thing. But um, there are things that happen that we can't explain, that we didn't make happen. So why not believe that it came from some force of goodness that's going on in the world and in our lives? And they came up and they said, you know, uh, they got to know me a little. And they said, I see a light in you. And I thought that what was in me was this deep pit of self-loathing and shame, which was my perception because I had negativity and self-loathing and so on. But they were the first ones that, and, and a couple of other people too, and my sponsor, they responded to the, um, the good, the good Gigi, the the higher Gigi, the one, the spark, the divine spark. Some people call it the, the truth in me that was basically a source of goodness and and could uh, influence my life in a positive way if I quit relying on my fear self or my ego self. So I had to kind of grasp that idea of the ego. And interestingly, one of the things that helped me. Um, this couple that I met, they took me to what's called a unity church. It's not Unitarian, it's unity. Um, and it's like practical spirituality. So there's no, you know, fire and brimstone or anything. Um, and I felt willing to go with them. And there was this, it was very related to recovery. A lot of people in recovery love unity church. Um, so the minister was in recovery. Well, when they first prayed, I could feel myself just, and even in the AA meetings when they prayed, and, um, but when that guy talked about a practical um, goodness or being in touch with a loving force, wherever we find it, versus a fearful force, um, my bullshit detectors did not go off. In other words, in, in contrast, my truth detectors went off. It's like, oh, there is something, and I don't have to believe the same thing everybody else believes. I can think about it any way I want, and AA is going to let me do that, and this minister is kind of modeling that. And um, they were very into what's called a course in miracles there, which is a, a spiritual teaching that's kind of mysterious. But the main thing about it is that it contrasts being in a fearful driven life with a love driven life. Once I got a hold of that concept that I could, and, and that cognitive restructuring, you know, that guy in the early 80s uh, wrote that book, Feeling Good, which was the first. Um, kind of cognitive reframing model that you, you could just change your thoughts if you chose and you could see them. And my therapist was helping me with that too. 
So then I started saying, oh, those negative thoughts that I've been believing all the time are just coming from a place in me that I'm trying to reduce its influence. And if I don't drink and I stay in therapy and I work the steps, I will reduce that fear-driven self, that self-loathing, and I will increase this loving self and this healthy self that's going to be able to make good decisions. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting what you said about this idea of removing kind of the labels of religion and God and all this stuff we hear in prayer, noticing how you feel and defining it on your terms. And you use some very good terms, like you say, in terms of the fearful self and the loving self, but defining it on your own terms and feeling what you want and thinking about who you're connecting with, what stories are resonating with you. Are you saying, are you going, oh my God, oh my God, or are you open and honest and moving towards that loving self? And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. It's, it's been, been a great gift, and I wouldn't say it happened fast. Um, in the 12 steps, of course, you know, I had kind of grasped that idea of a higher power, so when it came to the third step that you could turn your will in your life over to the care of a higher power, not the direction not the force, but just the care of a higher power. Um, and that I memorized the third step prayer with my sponsor and we said it together. Uh, that was probably the first prayer I ever uttered that I felt from the bottom of my heart. And the middle section of that prayer is relieve me of the bondage of self. That's the small self, the self-centeredness that I may better do thy will, and if I define thy will as this force of goodness in the world, then that force could help me reduce uh, my fear and worry and um, give me a security and a direction and put the right people in my life. And, and I think that's when we start trusting something bigger than ourselves, when we notice, you know, these little what are coincidences um, that seem to have a pattern of goodness to them that we did not force it to come about. It just happened. And, and then noticing how, oh, my God, that person came into my life, you know, and look what happened. And look at the goodness that came. So when, um, when I started really trusting that I had some female friends around me, I had a sponsor, I had the beginning of some kind of a higher power, uh, that's when I embarked on those house cleaning steps. Step four, the inventory. Five, sharing it with a sponsor. Six, looking at... Where has my self-centered fear been driving my life? And, and do I want it to continue? <laughs> and then going on to step seven, uh, and then making the amends. But those house cleaning steps, I wanted to say one thing. One reason I think people, there may be two reasons that people might hesitate with 12-step um, programs. One is what we've already talked about, this higher power thing. Uh, but the other one is the the bare-boned honesty that people talk about. I mean, and maybe a third thing, joining with others to heal, which is not a natural thing to do. But that second thing, the bare-boned honesty, um, what kept me fear from keep putting both feet in for that six-month period was um, I was starting to believe there was a good Gigi, but I knew there was a pit of shame and discomfort and dysfunction and unhappiness and maybe even evil inside of me. And that's part of why I've been using getting good grades and having loving, you know, romantic relations. I didn't want to look at that stuff. And I was terrified that and I think people think this too, maybe in, rec in uh, therapy, if I go in there and I have to get honest and I rip off that Band-Aid, all that shit's going to come pouring out all at once. And it's going to overwhelm me and I may not survive it. 
I mean, that's why I've been covering it up in the first place, right? <laughs> because that whispered lie, that negative, you know, fearful self is saying, you can't look at this stuff, you can't look at this stuff. And of course, when we don't look at it, it keeps driving us unconsciously. Well, I, I just wanted to make this one point, that there's no reason to fear that the Band-Aid's going to come off all at once. Uh, I tell the story in my book of three layers of healing, and, and there are still ones going on. But the first layer, of course, in the, this inventory and looking at character defects and so on, was around my alcoholism and substance abuse and um, to some extent the promiscuity. So uh, I could see that I was such a people pleaser. I could own that character defect. I knew I really cared what people thought and that that drove, you know, when I went through that process. Um, I could see that I had very negative self-talk. Um, I knew that drinking and uh, drugs had been keeping me from dealing with what my problems were. But none of the other stuff that I was afraid would come out did. So my first four step was around those issues, you know, self-talk, um, promise I did count upon the name and I slept with and shared that with my sponsor, which... And she didn't, you know, fall over dead, and it was, she didn't mind that that had happened. And that's part of the power is that we don't believe initially that if we tell our deepest, darkest secrets to one other person, whether it's a therapist or a, a sponsor, that, um, that they'll hang with us. We're afraid they're going to reject us, which is not the truth. Interestingly, a year or two later then, I started waking up to the alcoholism in my family. I hadn't really realized about my dad's drinking or the effect on us. I hadn't realized about my mom's depression and worry about it. I didn't know about the characteristics of children who grow up in alcoholic families. And so that was the next layer. I started hearing people talk about those meetings, the adult children of alcoholics. Um, I started going to some of those meetings. And where there I learned, I read that list of characteristics, which I did put in my book. And it was shocking because it was painting my picture, you know, inability to stay in long-term relationships, seeking thrills, you know, overachieving, perfectionism, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I thought, well, at first I was very discouraged because I thought if these are my characteristics and I grew up in that family, how can we change it? But um, those people sitting around those tables in the adult child of alcoholics, they had been with it for years and they had changed dramatically. And so in therapy still, and with my sponsor, I started looking at the perfectionism, the stress, the... Um, I guess it was, yeah, huge, huge anxiety over failure. I, I would, by that time, I was in the thick of my career, and I could see why I had had to drink because I was a ball of nerves trying to spin all these plates, you know, in my career, but also in therapy and doing, not drinking, and. Uh, going to meetings and working on my, quote, character defects. So I was feeling the full effects of my perfectionism and so on. So again, I was willing to go into the sixth step with that and the seventh step and ask that be removed. And removed is a strong word. I would say lessened. It's not like I never have a perfectionistic tendency or criticize myself, what's different is that I notice it very quickly, and I notice my little fearful self whispering that lie, oh, you didn't do this perfectly, what's wrong with you, that other person did it, why, you know, <laughs> and then I go, wait a minute, <laughs> there's a whispered lie, you know, that isn't the truth, let me tune into my, my loving self that knows that my worth is not established by what I do, or what I write, or what I say, my worth is established already, by a loving power. Well, that was the second 
player. Two years later, I'm out with my sponsor on a, a little sailboat, and I said, you know, I saw this show last night on TV about um, date rape, and I'm so glad that that never happened to me. And then I felt this stomach drop, and I thought, uh-oh, maybe something did happen. And by then I was enough in the program to know when we, at least in my case, when I discovered something scary that I knew I didn't want to deal with on my own, I knew that I could get help. You know, so I talked to my therapist, and I got a therapist who specialized in um, sexual abuse because I figured, oh, something happened. I don't know what. And um, that was a really hard time. I put that in Chapter 5. And um, it was even hard to write about it so many years later. Uh, but eventually, I realized that there had been some inappropriate touching. And I joined a sexual healing group with my therapist and worked through, not easily, not comfortably, but worked through those issues so that I could forgive and let it go and not have that self-loathing that I had let it happen continue to drive my life that that was not who I was. It was something that happened to me. And that was a huge gift to realize that. Yeah. And it sounds like it was a very hard thing to go through. Also, the healing has been very gratifying. And yeah. one thing I hear is it's almost like when we learn to walk when we're kids, we don't know how to walk. And we certainly don't try and run a marathon when we're you know, just learning to walk. <laughs> Um, and it's the same as what I'm hearing for you. Just your first day in therapy or your first meeting, you don't have to open the whole chest you've been hiding. It's about layers and, you know, unpeeling the layers of the onion. And as we learn to walk, we then learn to uh, run and then we can train to do a marathon. And when we train to do the marathon, we have that process of trainers and people around us and that support. And like you're saying, you knew when this came up for you, you then had that support, you had your therapist, you had your sponsor, you had meetings, you had a range of contacts you could call, and you had that support around you to kind of deal with those deeper kind of, um, yeah, higher levels of different things that go on in our life. And like you say, you then took it even further, you went to, you know, the spiritual um, yeah, side of things and joined new groups and did more healing around that specific thing. Yeah, it's, I think the point around those layers and is a knowing they're not going to come up all at once. And when we do that third step or um, kind of surrender doing everything my way and controlling it, because what's our way when we first get in recovery? I want it better and I want it now, right? I want healing now, and I want to get rid of the worst demons inside of me because those have been driving the bus, right? So let's get to that. And and I have a sponsee now who's saying that, and I'm saying, whoa. <laughs> when we say the third step prayer or affirm that there is a, a higher um, a universal or higher consciousness or something that that can guide us, in other words, it's like having a trainer. I could not lift the 15-pound weight of the sexual abuse in my first house-cleaning steps. But my higher power knew when I was ready at the second time to uncover the child of the alcoholic stuff. And just the right people and the words and came to And same with the third layer. It's like having a great trainer who says, okay, you're ready to heal this now, let's go. Never comfortable, but always freeing. And I did want to say that um, when you said the, the, um, the healing and the advantages that I've gained through the healing, uh, I did divorce my third husband after a year in recovery, and I... I did it very responsibly. We did a separate, you know, I always before when I left a relationship, I grabbed my skis and my saddle and I ran, you know. But this time, 
we did groups, you know, couples therapy and so on and so on, and that made a very responsible decision because I was healthy, healthy enough to do that. Um, not too long after that, I was, I met my husband, my current husband, Peter, and he, uh, I don't know if my higher power was looking down and saying, you know, this girl really needs a solid man in her life or what, because it's not like he saved me, but I, um, he's, how do I say this, it's kind of a miracle that after so many crash and burn relationships that I was able to be healthy in a relationship and not immerse myself in his world and become who he wanted me to be. I was healthy enough to be healthy in a relationship. And so this year we had our 31st wedding anniversary. Awesome. Yeah. And um, that's been a real gift of sobriety, being able to be happy and stable and healthy in a relationship. I think almost all of us want that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you say, we all want to get there, and it's never necessarily the easiest road, um, as we kind of both know. Um, it's not easy all the time, and you have to deal with that, you know, the stuff that comes up and go to therapy. But one thing I don't feel like it's necessarily talked about enough is how amazing and gratifying the rewards are when you put in all of this work, you do the therapy, you go to meetings, you do the steps, you do all this amazing stuff, and you get the rewards and you reap what you sow and that can be so valuable and just enlightening and just so amazing. So I'm so happy yes. for you. Yeah. You know, I, when I had to come up with a subtitle for my book because it's 50 ways to worry less now um because i want to make it for the general public not just recovering people although recovering people love it but i put um finding peace which is one of the gratifications peace of mind like during covid or during the selection i have a base peace of mind that allows me to watch and observe and even feel the chaos but not become part of it or contribute to it. It, it might knock me off my square for a minute because I'm human, but I know just how through prayer, meditation, all the tools I've learned to get myself back into a peaceful place, which is, by the way, the only place from which healthy decisions come. Also clarity. You know, what do I want? Who am I? What do I want to leave here in the world? You've got your full spirit awake and full to, to direct you in that direction, just like you have been. And then the connections, you know, the relationships. I'm, I'm in good relations with my family. Um, very fulfilling, healthy connections. When a, when a relationship isn't healthy, I, I know how to try to make it better, and I know how to cut the cord when I need to. Uh, and those are the benefits. You know, besides reaching a dream, I never thought I would write, write a self-help book, and I did, you know. So I didn't force myself to do that. It just was an inspiration. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Um, and, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about your book because I have a lot of clients who I take for our 12-week program and I always send them these podcast episodes. And I like to ask every guest some of the tips from your book and that you've learned along the way that could help the audience and my clients to yeah, help not only what I thought was interesting about your book is not only um, to kind of get sober but also once you are to deal with the anxiety, to deal, to deal with your emotions, to live a happy and fulfilled life and like I say 50 ways to worry less now I think we could all do with worrying less now. And as addicts, we want everything now and yesterday. So now I just love that word, being there. I definitely want to worry less right now, not tomorrow. So I thought that was awesome. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so this is the book. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and I, I love the color. And again, this experience was just like everything else. The right person showed up to create the cover. You know, the right words. I, I was inspired to go running up the steps. Um, my husband had said, well, no, someone had said, oh, you ought to write a memoir, you know, because you lived all over the world, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, ah. and so I sort of started that, but my husband said, 
I hear you talking with your sponsees on the phone and you're saying really helpful things. Why don't you put that in a book? And that's how this book was born. So um, I would say that every challenge I had in my life, in the book I'll present the challenge, first one, alcoholism, of course, how I found the solutions, how the reader can then use those same solutions for their issues. Um, you know, perfectionism, the different kinds of things that are self-sabotaging. I explained how I had chronic pain for several years and I discovered some Buddhist things with Pema Chodron and um, mindfulness and so on. Um, you know, my husband, who hadn't had a drink for 30 years, my current husband started drinking again. And so I went through that whole experience of what it's like and working Al-Anon and so on. So the reason I'm mentioning these hardships is because um, every time I had one, because I was sticking close to my supports and so on, I was directed to the right and perfect healing modality. So um, like when I was going through the sexual abuse things, I discovered um, energy healing and different energy healing things. Um, Reiki, cranial sacral, now EMDR, it wasn't in existence when I was going through that. Anyway, so the reason that there are 50 uh, ways is because as I went through these different hardships, I was able to find different ways to help myself through them. So they're um, energetic, cognitive, and spiritual. And one of the techniques um, that is very cognitive, but also a little bit spiritual, but doesn't have to be, is called the golden key. And um, some people might call it, I think in the cognitive science, reframing. But um, our mind can be a source of incredible healing and even a helpful higher power when we're not connected to the ego part of our mind, the fear part of our mind. So when, when I find myself worrying about something, I have developed enough self-awareness to eventually notice <laughs> that I'm worrying, right? <laughs> I'll be tense or whatever. And then um, I have this idea in the book, there's these whispered lies. My, my mind is telling me, whispering to me, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to, um, like now it's um, my, my brother has invited the whole family for Thanksgiving. So what are you going to do about that? You might get COVID. You don't want to expose yourself, but you don't want to disappoint them. But watch out. What do you, you know? <laughs> so that can go on and on spinning and no good decision will come from that. So my first goal is to seek peace of mind. Okay. So I notice myself obsessing and then I pivot my mind over to a, and here's where you, the originator of this golden key was Emmett Fox, who writes about spiritual matters in a, a very um, easy to understand and no jargon way. But anyway, he calls it the golden key because when you turn your mind away from the worry, you think about, he says, God or higher power or different, uh, the universe, you keep thinking, or different characteristics, goodness, love, well then, so I'm doing that, but then my mind goes back to, to my worry, right? And all I have to do is notice that it's worrying, I don't punish myself, I celebrate that I have noticed that I'm worrying, and then I make a conscious choice to think about, and again, here's where it doesn't have to be spiritual. Like, I can say, all is well. I can say, um, I will know exactly what to do when the time's right. I can say a lot of things to myself that are not worrying, that are positive. But no matter what I tell myself, because my mind has a default setting of worry, it's going to go back here, right? So then I just notice it and bring it back. So Emmett Fox says that as a result of doing this, because we're cons it's, it's basics, right? We're replugging our mind into a place of peace and wisdom rather than fear. Because we're doing that, out of that place will come 
some solution, some resolution, um, the right words if we need words, sometimes the right instinct to not say a word, because we've sought a place of peace rather than staying in the worry. So a lot of the 50 ways uh, do help us plug into that source of peaceful wisdom within or wherever we find it. That's one of them. Yeah, awesome, awesome. This sounds yeah super interesting and super helpful. Um, and yeah, then any other ones that come to mind out of the fifty that you feel would be useful. And this one's obvious, but uh, mindfulness meditation. Uh, the research is all over on how meditation and this. And let me just say this about meditation. People say, oh yeah, everybody says I should meditate. It would help with my stress. It would help with my chronic pain. It would help with my worry. But I just can't empty my mind. I have tried to empty my mind and I just can't empty my mind and so I can't meditate. Which is what I thought too. However, nothing could be further from the truth. As I understand it, they call it a meditative practice because I engage in the practice as in practicing push-ups or practicing uh, a musical instrument, I'm practicing noting what my mind is thinking about and consciously directing it to a place of peace. So it, where I'll find peace. So it, directing it to the breathing is the common thing. But it could be directing it and saying a, a gratitude list. It could be redirecting it and what am I hearing? So, here's the thing. Okay, I try to meditate and I can't because my mind keeps going back to thinking. Yeah, isn't that great? And now you have another opportunity to notice that you're thinking and redirect your mind. So you're getting practice at noticing where your mind is and redirecting it. And isn't that the essence of all peace of mind and wisdom is to take ourselves out of fear and into a place, or out of trying to control it and intellectualize it, into a place of a better, a higher wisdom. So, no wonder people who meditate, uh, the research results are so impressive with mindfulness meditation, where they did the research at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center with John Cabot Zinn, and their research shows that the fight-or-flight part of the brain shrinks among people who do mindfulness meditation. And I took the course that they offer. It's simple. It's just a matter of practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like you say, with a press-up, um, it's just simple, but it's about that practice. And yeah, the goal of meditation is not to not have any thoughts is to be the observer of your mind, like you say, and to kind of practice, um, not to just sit down and just be perfect and be mm -hmm. have arrived. Yeah. yeah. There is a, another one that is, a, you know, everybody's probably heard about redirecting your mind and meditation, but there are some in here that I used. Um, one is called radical forgiveness. I think uh, many people would agree that the more we focus our minds on negativity and judgment and resentment and it should be this way and it should have been that way and you know he I coulda I woulda he shoulda trying to control things outside our control um, that that is a great source of uh, as the Buddhists would say suffering <laughs> and um, so these resentments in 12-step uh, programs they say resentments are the number one offenders of our peace of mind and, and are likely to lead us into our a relapse if we don't deal with them. So, of course, um, I had a very deep down resentment toward uh, my father, who was one of the people who'd done the inappropriate touching. So, how do we forgive that? And one of the things that came into my existence was the book The Shack. S-H-A-C-K, a wonderful book about forgiveness, worth reading, um, not preachy. 
another thing, a guy I knew ran across a parking lot to give this to tell me about this. So that was kind of a, a higher powered thing. Uh, it's called Radical Forgiveness. And you can go to RadicalForgiveness.com and they have free worksheets and they explain how it works. Um, the other one that's a little too complex to explain simply here is Byron Katie and her wonderful The Work, which asks those questions, is it true, is it really true, and so on. So both of them in my book have extensive illustrations of how to use the process that have been approved by Byron Katie for the, in the case of The Work, and Colin Tipping, who created Radical Forgiveness, also approved my example here. Well, here's, it's, a, it's a, like a, a process that you can do with a worksheet or there's a, um, a guided meditation. But uh, basically, it, some people might find it an outlandish idea. So, you know, not every idea in my book is going to be um, taken easily. And I always suggest that if a, something doesn't appeal to you or your bullshit detector goes off, just let it go by. There are 50 different techniques. But this one really helped me because um, the theory is, you know, how uh, when something difficult in our life is going on and we have woken up to the fact that we're not a victim in this world. We can be aware that this thing is going on and then realize, oh, I've had other hard things go on and they helped me grow. I hated it, but it helped me grow. And this is another thing that can help me grow. So when my husband started drinking again, uh, the whispered lie that happened to me, which took a while to uncover, was he's just like your father. The man you thought would never hurt you is hurting you. Now, now, that's a deep-down thing, but I had done so much other work that he started drinking only, well, actually, when I was writing the book. Um, so, and we're still married, and he only has two drinks a day, by the way, and somehow he's fine with that. So that's a wonderful thing. But I was hanging from the rooftop when he started drinking because I thought this was the end. Plus, I had this deep down whispered lie that this man is my father, right? So, um, radical forgiveness is the idea that we have a situation that um, some people believe we set up when we, if we were souls coming down here, we set up some situations that would help us grow spiritually in the ways that we need to evolve. Whether you buy that or not, I don't know. Nobody knows, really. Um, but if I could look at this situation with my husband as a way to do another layer of healing, and I didn't know at the time that the healing that I would get to was forgiving my father at another layer. But radical forgiveness helped me drill down to that belief and say, ah, my husband is not my father. This man is not out to hurt me. I am not a victim of this man. And then, you know, and I had therapy and energy work and all kinds of help getting to this place, but radical forgiveness was a very useful tool uh, to go through the worksheet and so on. And I hold no negative or fearful feelings when my husband pours a drink. It's a miracle. <laughs> yeah no that's amazing that's amazing um and it's really interesting like you say to kind of um do that inner work and feel that gratitude and not necessarily change the contents of what's happening but have these tools in your amazing book to shift the context of how we see the world how we see those situations and that's really uh, amazing and i just enjoy listening to you i've enjoyed the conversation so much uh, unfortunately we're coming towards the end um, I just wondered if there was anything else you wanted to kind of leave our uh, listeners with any other wisdom you wanted to impart or thoughts that you had hmm. I guess the saying stop going to the hardware store expecting to buy milk I think a lot of us think that our 
our family members or even our lover are going to be the most helpful people in helping us heal. Occasionally that's true, but quite often in our families, if it's been a dysfunctional family, they're not emotionally capable of responding to us in the ways we want to. And that's not because they're a piece of shit or I'm a piece of shit. It's just because they're not capable because they grew up in the same system I did. So why keep going to someone who doesn't have the capacity uh, when I could find other people to go to? And of course, the first safest thing is a therapist, a sponsor, same-sex, no-romance relationships and sobriety. Those are the people who will step up for us emotionally. And, and that's where we go to find the milk. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. And I think, yeah, like you say, that's such an interesting thing to think about and just for the audience to know, to think about, like you say, our family and that can't necessarily help us. They're not the best people. Finding a therapist or a sponsor um, is the right way to do it. Um, and yeah, I think that's really amazing. And of course, everyone go and buy Gigi's book, 50 Ways to Worry Less <laughs> Now. Um, we've already heard some awesome ways. We definitely want to know the other 50. Um, and in terms of where people can find out more about you, buy your book, where's the best place to send them? Well, the best deal is gglanger.com, G-I-G-I-L-A-N-G-E-R.com. Because a lot of your listeners are in the UK, you know, I have a signed paperback that I'm selling uh, for a lower cost than on Amazon, but the postage to get to the UK is a little iffy. Um, so you can buy it easily on Amazon. You can, I made an audio book. It's not my voice, it's someone else, but it's very good. People like it, and it has a workbook with it. You can get the ebook, and it, I'll, if you let me know at ggbanger.com and the contact, even if you buy the book online, uh, I mean on Amazon or somewhere else, um, I will send you the little workbook, and there's a contact form on my website because it's kind of nice to have a little worksheet going along with the ebook, especially, and the audiobook. So you can buy paperback, audio book, ebook, whatever you want. Awesome, awesome. Well, yeah, like I say, everyone, go and buy it now. Um, it's awesome, and yeah, you can get it on Amazon and at Gigi's website. All the links and stuff will be below in the description and on our website, linking to Gigi's website, so you can find it all easily after listening to the episode. Um, and Gigi, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, I've loved it. Thank, Thank you so much. much. I've enjoyed, enjoyed it. it. Take care.